Sandra Yokway. Welcome to the final Tangata Otimoana for 2022. I'm Moira Tuile Fiji has a new Prime Minister. Karoi Hawkins has the latest from Suva. Sitiveni Rambuka has been elected as the new Prime Minister of Fiji, bringing an end to eight years of political dominance by the outgoing Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama, and his Fiji First Party. Rambuka was elected with 28 votes to 27 on Christmas Eve in Suva. Rambuka heads a three-party coalition government consisting of his own People's First, the National Federation Party led by Biman Prasad, and the king-making Sudelpa Party led by Viliame Nguavoka. Today's result was met with jubilant celebrations in the capital Suva, with similar scenes playing out across the country on social media. The result also marks the end of an era for Bainimarama, 16 years from the 2006 coup to the return of democracy in 2014 and two outright election wins. Emerging from Parliament, Frank Bainimarama conceded defeat, saying, This is my legacy. Sitiveni Rambuka is expected to announce the members of his cabinet in the coming days, where the three Sudelpa MPs end up will be the first indication of what was agreed to in the coalition negotiations. Koroi Hawkins for RNZ Pacific in Suva. Tokelau is the final Pacific nation to record COVID-19 cases with the first five cases recorded at the border this week. In a statement, the Ulu of Tokelau, or Head of Government, Siopili Perez, says Tokelau has been very fortunate to date, as it is the only country in the world alongside Turkmenistan where the virus had not spread in the community. Following the border cases, the administration requested assistance from New Zealand. Lydia Lewis spoke with Pacific People's Minister Opito William Seal following the announcement, who went through what the response will look like. I want the people of Tokelau and the families and their relatives who are out there on New Zealand not to panic and, and to feel proud of the fact that They've got 96% of its population that are vaccinated and that you've got uh, the health corridor, um, the Polynesian health corridor officials, our Ministry of Health, that have been continuing to engage with their officials and that we will provide them with whatever support they they require, whether it's um, a rat test or personal protection uh, equipment or any other essential equipment not to plan it, we'll continue providing with them. And I've sent off a letter uh, to the the, um, the Ulu, Siopili Perez, who's also the Minister of Health, and he and I have had an ongoing relationship in the past uh, several years uh, whilst we're dealing with this pandemic and supporting the rollout of the vaccine. So I think I just want people not to panic. This is part of um, of living with the virus that they'll get cases, um, but at least they've identified their systems in place and people should still be looking forward to enjoying Christmas with their families. And Dogalau has requested for some extra assistance. When was that request made officially and what have you responded with? The request was made earlier this week and so we're sending a shipment of more medical supplies, that includes second booster vaccines, about 1,200 
12,000 rat tests, uh, personal protective equipment, and a number of other essential equipment. But then, of course, we've got our health officials who are maintaining contact online and will continue to support them uh, in whatever way that the Tokelau government requires. And you just mentioned that the call was made earlier this week and yet the first press statement was late last night. Can you tell me um, a little bit more about when these first cases were recorded and the process? Because I understand that there have been meetings that have taken place and there is quite a different process of making these announcements in Tokelau. Um, yeah, you have to remember that um, Tokelau, whilst you know, New Zealand is administrative Tokelau, they do have their own government and they do have their ministers responsible for the work. And so they have to go through their process. They have a system that's in place um, and their own local leadership. And we've provided the support. And so it was up to them to be able to make all this call public. And we could not make anything public until the Tokelau Ulu and the government was prepared to do that. And so, as I said, there was never any risks at all because there was ongoing discussion with our officials at the health uh, officials line. And, and, and so when they've gone public, we'd already made those announcements. We indicated to them that that's what we're doing. And now we're making all of that public for the, the sake of being open and transparent about it all. I understand that uh, an entire atoll um, was tested and re- recorded negative tests. Have you heard a bit about the logistics behind that? I understand that all of the cases are on the Atoll of Atafu. Um and what's happened is that they were tested positive during their required quarantine period following inter-Atoll travel. Um, so there's no indication at all community transmission or any of Tokelau's three Atolls. You have to remember that there are three atolls and basically your family but and so there's a lot of inter travel between those islands i couldn't give you any more than what i've received finally what is the new zealand government's position on tokelau's um, response oh look i think um we're very pleased with the tokelau's response as i said they are their vaccinate is one of the uh, you know enviable rates of the world and, and of course, um, they've really kept their borders very, very close. Um, and I'm just saying to them that as we open up the islands, um, with reconnecting with the rest of the world and families are looking forward to being able to travel, uh, to spend time with relatives, I think people can still be very confident to travel with safety. The French government says it won't organise another referendum in New Caledonia during the president's current five-year term. A year ago, then Overseas Minister Sebastien Lecournu said he planned to have a vote on a new statue for New Caledonia by June 2023. This was after last December's third independence referendum rejected the option of full sovereignty. The vote concluded the 
decolonization process under the terms of the 1998 Numia Accord. But after the rejection of independence, the accord requires all parties concerned to discuss a way forward. The pro-independence parties refuse to recognise the last referendum result and seeks talks with Paris next year to secure a timetable to attain independence. Talks on a new statute are yet to be launched, but speaking in the French National Assembly, Interior Minister Gérard Darmanin ruled out any further voting on the issue for five years. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with senior RNZ Pacific journalist Walter Swivel, who has been following political developments in the Territory. He began by asking him if this was a significant announcement. In a way it is, because it basically means that the process that was initiated by France a year ago after the referendum has stalled or has to be altered or possibly abandoned. Uh, This week, a year ago, we had the referendum and just in the days after it, the then overseas minister, Sebastian Lecourne, who said that there would be a new statute drawn up that was going to be put to a vote by June 2023. It was going to be a referendum in New Caledonia on a new statute. Now, we also know that the pro-independent side has not accepted the outcome of the referendum and uh, they have not made any indication that they are going to cooperate in the work towards a new statute because, after all, for them, the next step is New Caledonian independence. Now, am I right in saying this would be welcome news for the pro-independence but not so welcome for anti-independence? I'm not quite sure how it's going to be interpreted on the pro-independence side Because after all, they have said that they want to have negotiations with France on a timetable to attain independence. Uh, Gerald Damana was in New Caledonia only a couple of weeks ago. And talking to all sides there, he understood that the process forward was complicated and he said he didn't want to rush things. Now, we already had an indication back in September when the new overseas minister was there saying that the timetable could not be kept to that June 2023 deadline. Uh, The suggestion was there was still going to be a referendum, but Mr. Damana says now there's not going to be a referendum at all on this question. Uh, The understanding is that uh, the process is complicated, will take time. We have Mr. Damana saying two things. One side, he says uh, New Caledonia has a a right to autodetermination or self-determination. And he also says that the referendum result, which is three times no, has to be respected. Uh, The understanding, of course, is that without the consent or the cooperation of the pro-independent side for the next phase, things cannot progress. Uh, What's hanging over New Caledonia now, however, is the sort of 2024 election that is supposed to go ahead in line with the pattern of five yearly elections. And uh, the question there is under what conditions will that election go ahead? Uh, For the anti-independent side, it is clear that with the rejection of full sovereignty, the electoral system has to be changed. Migrants have to be integrated in the sense that they have to be given voting rights. The pro-independent side, however, says that the provisions of the Numia Accord that has restricted the electorate has to stay. That is an irreversible change. Uh, Now, how France will try to accommodate these two rival positions is the 
thing that we have to look out for and uh, somehow or another it will have to be a constitutional change in France in order to open this electorate, something that the pro-independent side is resisting. So we're walking in a way on eggshells, awaiting now the Congress of the FLNKS of the pro-independence parties in January, after which Mr. Damanan says there will be further talks, these vaunted bilateral talks between the pro-independence camp and Paris on what the next step will be. But uh, the, the thing to take away from the current situation is that uh, Paris obviously has no plans of organizing a referendum on a new statute. Apart from that sort of election sort of timeline that you're saying, outside of the confines of something like the Nouméa Accord, it's kind of open-ended, isn't it, for France in terms of taking as much time as is needed to resolve this issue. Nomi Accord set a timeline and uh, just interpretation of what this accord is seems to be a, a crucial thing because for the anti-independent side, this was a temporary arrangement. For the pro-independent side, this is sort of like a, a finite uh, step towards independence. Um, no one wants to go back to the situation of the 1980s, which was so confrontational. Uh, so the, a new statute or a new arrangement has to be found. The question is just what that is going to look like. The pro-independent side considered this Numia court process launched in 1998 as sort of the final phase before they did attain independence. Uh, the Numia court ends with the provision, should there be three no's uh, for independence, then there is a new situation that has arisen, which means that all the interested political parties have to discuss whatever whatever situation has arisen. So that's where we're at now. Uh, the, as I said, the anti-independent side considers the victory, which is legally solid, uh, is the outcome, meaning reintegration to France. The pro-independent side says, well, the Kemet people didn't vote, they boycotted, it's not the final outcome. They think that uh, the situation that's arisen now is just uh, finding the next and final step towards independence. Uh, mm. Yeah, but again, like what I'm saying is, unlike with that that numeric court structure, there's there's no date or timeline or have this within 20 years or do this within. There's there's no no time set for which this must be carried out. This could go on for a very very long time. In a way, yes, except that we've got this 2024 election. And uh, as I understand, uh, something has to be said about what the, the format of that election will be. Uh, the pro-independent side thinks that the Nomi Accord is still valid with the, the restriction of the electoral body. However, it is difficult to claim within the French system and the French constitution that you have citizens in your bigger realm who lived there for 20 years and have no right to vote because they don't fit the mold that was set with the Nomi Accord of this restricted electorate. So a decision is awaited there. Uh, there's, of course, apprehension that France will unilaterally change the constitution and open up this electorate. Uh, the pro-independent side is vehemently opposed to this. Uh, uh, Paris, of course, understands that it doesn't want to uh, create conflict in the situation, but there is a risk of the arising problems should whatever arrangement that is going to be made, loosening these restrictions that could cause uh, major dissent and uh, without, as I said, without the accord and, and uh, of the pro-independent side, uh, there cannot be a, a solid, stable basis for the territory's future.
You're listening here to Tangata Ote Moana. Discrimination against Pacific people living with disabilities in Tonga remains an ongoing challenge, according to a survey released from Australia's aid programme in the Kingdom. People with disabilities suffer from widespread stigma, unemployment, and discrimination. The Alonga Centre. Tonga's main rehabilitation home for disabled people has received heavy government support in light of a recent national report which revealed that people with disabilities in the kingdom were heavily marginalised. Paul Fuahou, a 16-year-old special needs student, was raised at the Alonga Centre and says discrimination is one of the reasons why the centre exists. RNZ Pacific's Finau Fonua spoke with Fuahou, who says the facility offers a safe place for disabled people. Can you explain how you grew up here? Uh, yes, thanks for that opportunity. Um, my dad and my mom married in 2005. And in 2006, I was born on May 16th. I was being raised up here. They were teachers. First they taught me how to have manners towards someone that is different from them, like normal people, eh? like those who doesn't have any disabilities with them. But I I grew up to to call them family. And yeah, the center is home for me. the COVID, did it affect the center? Did people get booked? Um, we, we were announced on the radio not to visit because uh, we were one of the hotspots that the Ministry of Health told us that we are one of the hotspots. Because um, the Tonga Red Cross Society, they were donating clothes from Samoa. And um, one of them was affected by the virus. But when it comes to health checkups, we we made it. We no one, none of us were affected by the virus. It's just a few coughing and few um, fever, but we we didn't got affected by the virus. So we we do had a doctor in the hospital. Her name is Doctor Anne. We were donated with masks at the same time, which was from the government. And I think the government of Australia and Japan, yes. Is there any discrimination that people with disabilities? In fact, I do remember some some of the disabilities they have um, um, problems with their faces, how they walk like physically. Eh? And there was one day we went and one of um, these little one of the girls who walked by the road, they went like, oh, look, look at them. They behave like dogs and animals. When you often come to like various occasions where youth is there, like the youth are attending all the occasions, I think it's a bit easier for people to discriminate us. We don't have to worry about it. They're, they're just like um, encouraging us to be who we are. One of the most touching discrimination of all is when they get to say 
gosh, they don't even bath and they, they have disabilities. That's what I heard from one of them, a group of youth. But when I came back home, I felt like my life is um, it's being threatened. What did they say? Um, when we sat down, one of one of our clients here, he he was overjoyed and excited to like it's the first time to go out. We should go out and play. And, and when it comes to the occasion, one of the girls was like, "Ew, he doesn't even take a bath." And plus. He's disabled. He has disabilities. And um, yes, I did manage to tell her one big thing. Respect others because you don't even know what they're going through every day in their life. These people with disabilities have been my family for 16 years now. And it, it is such a blessing and an honor to be with them. I think the discrimination from the people and the youth gave us um, such strong courage to build more um, hope for the future. Discriminations, it's more like air. It's more like carbon dioxide, which is released from others. And we took them in like plants to uh, use for, for, for the process of photosynthesis. Like the discrimination is more like carbon dioxide. We use them to encourage us to produce a glucose for that, that tree's um, part, body parts eh? to have energy to live and to survive in that community, which I prefer. It is us. Is discrimination common for you? Is it common? Discrimination, it's, um, if, if we go out, I, I, I do feel out of the 100%, I think 2 or 3%, um, they do have discrimination um, against or towards the disabilities. We know Tonga is a Christian country, but I think discrimination is one of um, the major fact that our hope is being built up. Yes. New research has uncovered the inequity, racism and harassment suffered by some Pacifica at law schools and also by those in the legal profession across Aotearoa. The study stems from a project that brought together academics, students, graduates, legal practitioners and policymakers from across the country to identify the barriers to Pacifica entering and succeeding in law schools. The report was launched recently at Victoria University. Te Hiringa Waka, Maramate Pole reports. The study was undertaken through Talanoa, a traditional, inclusive and participatory dialogue process, a first-of-its-kind approach for legal research. Lead researcher Dr Mele Tupou-Vaitohi is a senior lecturer of law at Victoria University and a leading scholar on Thongan constitutional law. She says now the research part of the report has been done, work on the next steps will start. It will provide something for us to start discussing. Um, it will provide information and guidance on um, and ideas around 
what can be done or what should be done to improve the current situation that we have, and that is we need to increase our numbers so that we can be um, more represented in the profession as well as in the law schools. Dr. Tupo Vaitohi says the report is evidence of what's been spoken about before. We can have uh, something to substantiate um, the stories from our people, what they're experiencing um, in law school and in the law profession. So this report provides evidence um, as well as relevant information that our people can tap into and use to make a case about you know, something to improve. Uh, equity, justice, belonging, you know, and all those important areas um, in law. Berith Betaya is a law student at the University of Canterbury and she took part in the project. I kind of pinch myself there how, how timely it's come for all the changes we see, um, the more Pasifika people we see um, killing it in the profession. And, um, and I think it's just important because there are significant issues that Pasifika law students are facing and um, hopefully this research will expose some of that stuff that's happening and um, provide working solutions and um, really challenge our institutions to do better. She shares some of the talanoa the students at her university spoke of during the research. Some of the real issues were like um, the differences in worldviews, the clash that you, I mean, we come to university and these schools and we're confronted with Western values and that often is conflicts with where we come from and some of our values and, and that is a struggle at law school sometimes as well. Um, I would say other themes is belonging, you know, like it's so different if you don't come from a legal background and going to law school. You're not always used to the jargon. The project was funded by the Michael and Suzanne Boren Foundation. Its chief philanthropic officer, Tupe Solomon Tanua'i, is a former diplomat with over 10 years' experience in the greater China region. She says she wasn't too surprised by what she heard from the law students, as it was similar to what she experienced as a Pacifica law student. When you are feeling like you don't belong, that there are you know, others in other spaces who you know, feel the same that you do, so... Um, you're not alone, and, and I think that's um, you know something really powerful in this report is that um, it records um, the experiences of those who've been through law school and have started working in the legal profession, and just lets um, those who are having feelings that they don't belong um, and lets them know that they are not alone. When the Pacific looks back on the year 2022, the Tongan volcano eruption and COVID-19 will stand out. But there was a lot more going on across the Blue Continent, including climate discussions and political uncertainty. RNZ Pacific's Christina Perseco takes a look in the rearview mirror. After intermittent eruptions at the end of 2021, the Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapai volcano became a one in 1,000 years disaster on January 15, 2022. A medical team leader on the ground said locals thought it was World War III. Three people were killed, entire villages had been wiped out by tsunami waters, and communications were down, heightening concerns for loved ones. 
Local media reports a convoy of police and troops rushed the king to a villa at Mataki Ewa as residents headed for higher ground. Earlier, a series of explosions were heard as the undersea volcano Hungatonga Hunga Haapai erupted, throwing clouds of ash into the sky. The explosions were heard on La Kemba, Matuku and in Fiji's capital Suva around 6pm. As well as the palace grounds, the waterfront and main street were flooded in Nukualofa. This man is running as his house floods. Our house is actually right on the beach, so I believe we've probably got about two metres of elevation, so I would think that a one and a half metre tsunami would have gone through the house. We're just hoping that our family looking after the place is safe and we can't wait to hear from them. The eruption has been really quite unusually large and very violent. So um, we don't often see eruptions of of this size. So these probably occur every few decades. It has been almost a year since the eruption and a commemoration is planned for January 2023. In 2022, the world started opening up again after two years of separation. The World Health Organization reported a total of 103.7 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 across the Western Pacific to December 19th. Border reopening across the region was gradual. Tokelau was the last Pacific nation to be COVID-free, but on December 20th it was announced that five cases were picked up through rat screening and quarantine. Fiji, Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea all voted this year. PNG's election in July was marred by what has been called the most violent election in the nation's 47 years of independence. At the end of it, James Marape took his seat as Prime Minister. A surprise controversial election was triggered in Vanuatu after the dissolution of the country's parliament on August 19th. In October, official results revealed a fractured parliament, with seven being the highest number of MPs won by a single party. In November, Ishmael Kasakal was elected unopposed as the 13th Prime Minister of Vanuatu. It took Fiji a long time to decide on an election date. When they did, there were high hopes for a smooth election, but it had its moments. The reigning Fiji First failed to get an outright majority, and the Social Democratic Liberal Party, or SADELPA, became kingmakers. They chose to join up with the National Federation Party and the People's Alliance for a three-party coalition. Communication will be sent to His uh, Excellency the President, confirming that the new People's Alliance, National Federation Party and Sodalpa government is ready to lead under the new Prime Minister, Mr. Sitiveni But that was not the end of it. Reports swirled about flaws in the Sidelpa in-house voting, claims of violence and a refusal to concede from incumbent Frank Bainimarama. With Christmas fast approaching, Sidelpa was allowing both sides to resubmit their coalition proposals on December 23rd. At COP27, the Pacific took its plea for survival to the world. The record rates of increased coastal erosion, ocean acidification, the loss of coral reefs, coupled with ever-present rising sea levels, three times higher than the global average. 
our ability to respond to the increasing multiplicity of disasters and the increasing severity and intensity of extreme weather patterns is now undermined. You know, what happens when, when people are forced to relocate, when entire cultures are moved? As sea level rise, our population will be displaced from their homes. However, climate change, climate refugees is not covered under the categories of the Refugee Convention. Drowning islands and flooded nations requires a reassertion of our basic human rights. The major solutions that we talk about remain distant as we are at the mercy of multilateral implementing agencies who continue to determine how we adapt so disheartening. Nevertheless, we remain hopeful that our collective efforts and partnership will address these concerns. The region fought and begged for a fund to be set up for loss and damage mitigation in the region, and they succeeded despite the fund not being on the agenda at the start of COP27. It is due for launch by 2024. But it was not all sunshine. World leaders failed to agree on language to phase down all fossil fuels instead of only coal. Several Pacific representatives expressed disappointment in the summit. Progress was made, but more is likely needed out of COP28 next year. Around 20 people were confirmed dead and more than 120 others were injured in October after fighting on Kitawina Island in PNG. There were multiple layers of issues and tensions involved. PNG police met with the communities involved in a bid to negotiate peace and order on the island. And it's been a bit of a game of tug of war in terms of aid and presence in the Blue Continent. The US and China have been offering support ranging from funding of infrastructure to police training. 2023 will be an interesting watch. And 2022 was also a big year for Pacific sport. With a shock World Cup final appearance, the first Pacific teams to play in Super Rugby, Commonwealth Games medals galore and milestones reached in many sports. As Craig Steeren reports, there was much to savour in a year which sport began to return to normal after more than two years of enforced isolation and cancellations due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Before the start of this year, no team from the Pacific had ever reached a World Cup final in either rugby or rugby league, men's or women's. But the glass ceiling was smashed in November when Toa Samoa defied logic to reach the Rugby League World Cup playoff in England after upsetting Tonga in the quarterfinals, then squeezing past England in the semi-finals. That win was all the more remarkable considering that England had humiliated the Toa 60 points to 6 in the tournament's opening game. But then Samoa were boosted by the arrival of their six NRL finalists and things began to click. The president of Rugby League Samoa, Tangalua Faofina Sua, said the team's success had united the nation. Well, everyone like in the world and here in Samoa, we've been through a lot, you know, with the COVID and a lot of other challenges we had. And that, I think the Rugby League World Cup is uh, one of the best things that happened for the last uh, two, three years. For our nation, not just here in Samoa, but, you know, all around the world. The run caused flags to be raised and mass crowds gathered from Apia to Adelaide and Savai to South Auckland. Now, the tour of Samoa will return to a hero's welcome in the Samoan capital in five days' time. In rugby, Moana Pacifica and Fiji Andrua broke new ground by competing in the Super Rugby Pacific competition for the first time. 
Fiji Rugby Union Chief Executive John O'Connor said it was what all Fijians had wanted. Yeah, the opportunity to you know to play in a super rugby team has always been a dream of uh, most of uh, our young players eh? playing rugby in primary school and secondary. Apart from uh, playing for the Flying Fijians or the Fijian Sevens team, uh, one of their dreams is to be able to you know to play professional rugby. However, the team's journeys began with defeat. When the 10 times champions Crusaders beat Moana Pacifica 33-12, but the new side turned in a respectable showing in that debut match. The Fijian Drew made history in their third match, defeating the Melbourne Rebels 31-26 in Queensland, and when the two teams met in May, it was then Drew that came out on top, defeating the rivals 34-19 in Sydney. Both Pacifica and Andrew ended up with two wins apiece, setting them up for a competitive 2023 campaign. In the women's game, the Fijiani and Drew's historic victory over the New South Wales Waratahs in Melbourne ended the dominance of the Waratahs and gave the Fijiana the Super W title. In England, which was enduring scorching temperatures in the Northern Hemisphere summer, Pacific athletes were on fire, winning a total of 12 medals at the Commonwealth Games, which was split among six nations. Samoa won the region's only gold through weightlifter Don Opelengi, and the nation's lifters also won three silver medals, and there was also Samoan silver in heavyweight boxing. Fiji won four medals, two of them in the rugby sevens, but there was some disappointment that neither team could win their respective finals. Weightlifting brought the only medals for Papua New Guinea and Nauru, Vanuatu gained a bronze in beach volleyball, one of the stories of the Games was when Nui gained his first ever medal with a boxing bronze. PNG chef de mission Michael Hanau said it was a great team performance because of the obstacles that were in place. It was like I'm sure every single other athlete at these Commonwealth Games have, have come through such a difficult uh, period of time for all of humanity right through COVID, especially in Papua New Guinea with, our, uh, with access to um, our training facilities and training centres. And I have to give credit to our Papua New Guinea Sports Foundation because they really have been the backbone. Pacific netballers didn't qualify for the Games, but there was a remarkable story with the one-time underdogs Tonga hitting an unbeaten streak. They began the year with no world ranking at all. Now they're the only Pacific team in the world's top ten. The Talas liftoff began in March in Sydney at the first of two Pacific Oz netball tournaments, which they won. Four months later, they had another undefeated tournament at the Oceanan Championships, securing qualification for the 2023 Netball World Cup for the first time. This week has seen the Lionel Messi-led Argentina lift the Men's Football World Cup for the third time and the first time since the days of Diego Maradona. The final, played against France in Qatar, seems a world away from the game in the Pacific, with football is second to the rugby codes. But the Oceania qualifiers, which was also held in the Gulf State, showed the game has come back to the position it was in before COVID struck, even though the disease forced the postponement of several early games. New Zealand won the tournament, perhaps as expected, in qualification for the Intercontinental Playoff, where they lost a controversial match against Costa Rica. They beat Solomon Islands in the Oceania final, but the Yellow and Blues proved themselves to be the clear second-best team in the region, Will PNG give the All-Whites their toughest test, holding them to just 1-0? In the women's qualifiers, PNG defeated Fiji to win the tournament and bag a place in the Intercontinental Playoffs for next year's World Cup. And finally, 
Papua New Guinea earned the most gold medals in the Pacific mini-games in Saipan after finishing with 33 goals. The event was much reduced due to COVID-19, but late in 2023, the full Pacific Games will be held in Solomon Islands for the first time, giving the country a likely financial boost. And that's Tangata Otemuana for 2022. I'm Moira Tuila Taylor from all the RNZ Pacific team. Manuela Garisi Masi, Malitao Sangafo.